Good morning. Like Sarah Donaldson, I'm a big fan of chapel. What a privilege we have to gather corporately around our shared commitment to Jesus. As you'll see in this presentation, I don't take that lightly. Community is very important to me. Recently, I've been exploring my motivation to pray. What prompts me to pray? What role does prayer play in my daily life and activities? Not just the spiritual ones. I want to take this time with you to share some of what Jesus has been teaching me. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we spend this time together, teach us about prayer. Thank you for those who have prayed over this talk. Please come and please bless us, we pray. Amen. I thought about relating to you how I see God in the fundamental theorem of calculus. About how I see God in the second law of thermodynamics. And my students will tell you I get pretty excited about those things when I teach on those topics. But I decided to tell you stories about how God has been teaching me about prayer instead. So you will have to take my classes to learn about those evidences of our God. As Dr. Green mentioned, I spent over 20 years teaching mechanical engineering at Virginia Tech, which is a large public university, home to the Virginia Tech Hokies. Are there any here? Not, not, not many here. <laughs> so this is a picture in the center of the campus as seen from the drill field where the Corps of Cadets have marched and thousands of students have traversed the grounds since back in the 1800s. I want to take you back to a time before these memorial Hokley stones, which you can see in the foreground, and the flowers that are above them grace the grounds in front of Burris Hall, back to a day that changed the Hokie nation forever. April 16, 2007, it was a spring day on a campus of 25,000 students going to class as usual, except for one student who didn't go for the lecture. He had carefully prepared a sinister plan. He came to armed and with chains to lock the exterior doors to give him unimpeded time and space time to enter classrooms and systematically work his way around the room, claiming as many victims as he could. When the shootings finally stopped, 32 students and faculty had been killed and others wounded. I was not on campus that day, but I will tell you about someone I knew who was. Dr. Kevin Granada was about my age. He was 46 years at the time. And he was uh, in the prime of his career. He was a researcher. He'd been doing work in bio, biomechanical things. And he was preparing a laboratory experiment for a course I was teaching. So I had just met with him a matter of weeks before that. 
He happened to have an office on the third floor of Norris Hall. And when he heard shooting, his military background would not allow him to stand by. So he told his graduate students to lock themselves in the lab. And he went down to the second floor to intervene. He never came back. That day, his family was left fatherless. And it was a reminder that we don't know if we have tomorrow. The shock of such tragedy came hard on a community where seemingly everyone on campus knew one of the victims as we realized collectively that life had changed that day. So we gathered in small groups and large. We gathered feeling the need for each other. We gathered looking for the good. We gathered seeking something transcendent. We did not mourn alone as the world began to hear of the unspeakable horror of the massacre. Many from outside our community came to show their support. First came the media, the trucks and the satellite dishes and the TV cameras and the reporters with microphones or mic- at wanting to hear what we felt, what was going on with us. So the word began to get out. The world began to hear what had happened that day. The governor came, and what he later said was the toughest day of his term in office. Even the president of the United States came as the face of a nation mourning with us. Ravi Zacharias came and gave a lecture and helped us to search for answers to the big questions that were raised And something like this happens. And even the New York Yankees came. They came to play a game of baseball to remind us that life goes on. And yes, God did too. In addition to those we could see that visited us, someone much bigger came in force. In the face of such evil and violence, the God of all comfort and peace brought a taste of his kingdom. For as Pastor Joe Novenson loves to remind us, God exploits evil to bring good, even as he did on the cross. God is always working for his glory. Nothing catches him by surprise. His kingdom is only furthered, even if much of what he does is spiritual, and so we can't see it. Jesus promises us that those who mourn will be blessed, for they shall be comforted. Some of the ways that God ministered to us were very tangible in ways that went far beyond what any of us could have imagined before that day. As a community, we obviously wept. As a community, we hugged. I can vividly remember the first time my class met after that incident that I was so excited to see students that I hugged them because we didn't know who was in the, in the building that day. We didn't know who would show up in our classes. We obviously gathered because we knew we needed community. We needed each other. This was not something that we could handle on our own. And yes, we asked big questions, questions about why, Lord? 
Why does this happen? We felt the evil and the good because both were very evident. We longed for the light. And we certainly didn't doubt that we were helpless. Yes, we knew we needed to pray. One of the truths of Scripture is that evil does not come from outside of us, but that it comes from within us. And I remember realizing that although it was easy to point fingers at the shooter, I was capable, and in fact, Jesus says, I had those same thoughts in my mind. So when we are confronted with the depth of our depravity, we realize just how small and helpless we actually are. Death and loss are never satisfied, at least with what we can do. I can no more overcome that evil than I can reach out and touch the sunset from my office window in Mills Hall. In the aftermath, where did we turn? We sought strengths and and words to rally around. We needed a reminder of truth and transcendence to give us hope. Well, it turns out those words came from one of our faculty, a poet who suggested a phrase which became such a cry. We are Virginia Tech. We will prevail. We are Virginia Tech. We will prevail. We are Virginia Tech. We will prevail. Repeated often and with emphasis, as if we could draw strength from such a mantra and declare our resiliency to the world. But it didn't have that effect on me or on many in the Christian community who had seen what had held us together and what actually gave us hope. How did those words feel to me? Hollow. Where is there any power in a human institution, no matter how old or enduring? Those words felt proud. What about all those seen and unseen who had reached out to help us recover? Those words felt inadequate. People were murdered. Families were devastated, and the community was terrorized. But most of all, it felt like a fist in God's face. It felt offensive, as if we were saying, we are sufficient, we will overcome. There's no help needed here, we can handle this. Well, fast forward to a new chapter in my life. One peaceful day last fall, I was walking around the lake in front of my house. I know, it's a really tough place to have to walk, but I do the best with it. (laughs) As I walked and talked with Jesus, I pondered the question that I posed at the start of this talk. What motivates me to pray? When I'm doing spiritual things in church or missions, prayer is normal and expected. 
when I feel pain or I want to care for others who are in pain, prayer comes naturally. But what about in the daily activities of my little C callings? What about in the things that I know how to do, like my profession or my skill set or my strengths? So I asked for help. Lord, teach me about prayer. It was a simple, but it was a profound request. And he answered me in a surprising way. In my search to know how to pray, I have been reading through a book by Paul Miller that I can highly recommend. It's very practical, and from one of his practical suggestions, there's one that has has particularly grabbed my attention. So let me share it with you. If you are not praying, then you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. If you are not praying, then you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. So why do I not feel the need to pray? Paul Miller goes on to say, but if, like Jesus, you realize that you can't do life on your own, you will find time to pray. So if Jesus is our example, then that is our example to follow. Paul Miller goes on to make this claim. Jesus was the most dependent person who ever lived. Jesus was divine, and yet he demonstrated how to always be dependent. Jesus holds all things together, and yet he said, I can only do the will of my Father. As I pondered and listened, and I asked that question, Lord, teach me about prayer, the Lord startled me with what he brought to mind, something I had not thought about in years. We are Virginia Tech. We will prevail. I remembered how that made me feel, how it seemed so hollow, so proud, so inadequate, and so offensive. And then it hit me. Those are my words. As if God peered into my soul and gave me a glimpse of who I really am. Experienced a mirror moment. We are Virginia Tech. We will prevail. Hollow, proud, inadequate, and offensive to God. That is what I am saying to God when I don't live in prayer about everything. It's as if I were saying to God, I am sufficient. I will overcome. There is no need for help here. So in thinking about our example, we could ask the question, when did Jesus pray? If we study that, I think we would find that the answer is when did he not? To know the Father's will 
he had to be in constant touch with his father. As I contemplated the significance of Jesus' example, I realized that the more appropriate question for us should be, so why am I not praying? Do we have a rallying cry that will give us hope in a world where the need is so great that if we see it with his eyes? Let me suggest one, although I'm not a poet, Robert Earl. I'm going to try. Here we go. We are God's people. We will pray. We are God's people. We will pray. As Kelly Capick reminded us last week, our humility stems from our recognition of total dependence. In prayer, we express that dependence. And if you will, let me share one, yet one more reason that I am praying. January 9th, 2020, another important day in my life and another reason why I pray. When I realized the helplessness of my new grandson in the face of a world and a heart full of evil, and then I further acknowledge that I am just as powerless, it causes me to pray fervently. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for giving us a glimpse into just how dependent we are. We pretend otherwise, but when we are faced with who we really are, help, it, help that to turn us to prayer. Help us to be faithful in praying each day about everything, not just the big things, not just the spiritual things, but to recognize how dependent we truly are on a God who is so willing to help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.